Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Welcome to Medicine for Good Podcast, Episode 18. Pre-COVID, doctors across the globe work in stressful conditions, making life and death decisions under considerable pressure. COVID-19 has exacerbated the stress and brought physicians' wellness and mental health to a critical point. The isolation, the increased stress being in the front lines, working long hours, having to decide who lives or who dies, who will benefit from intervention and who won't. And the increasing responsibilities being home for both work and handling our homeschoolers, feeling the lack of support and the time to even seek help or counseling contribute to compound distress and burnout. As early as high school and college, students preparing in medical school and residency, the rigor of training further perpetuates this unending treadmill of high expectations, leaving no room to fail. As physicians, we face pressures from all fronts, expectations from patients and organizations that we work for, from our managers, from our loved ones, and from our own ethics, professionalism, and standards of care and expectations from ourselves. All these mounting pressures lead to more stress, anxiety, depression, substance abuse, and suicide. U.S. physicians have one of the highest rates of suicide of any profession. It is estimated that 300 to 400 doctors kill themselves each year, more than double that of the general population. Career fatigue is more common among doctors than other U.S. workers. Archives of internal medicine revealed 41% of 7,000 participating physicians reported at least one symptom of burnout, 41%. Physicians are under constant increasing demands and scrutiny to deliver the very highest quality of care that is efficient and cost-effective. That is some pressure. Coping mechanisms, good or bad, are stretched to the max. And the trip to a counselor or mental health specialist are filled with stigma. There's an unspoken rule in medicine that expression of emotion is a sign of weakness. Depression is not viewed well, and stigma against mental illness is experienced in all fronts, from our institutions, from our leaders, from societies, and by the sufferers themselves. So today... I really welcome three esteemed colleagues who will help provide the platform for discussion of this very important topic, and hopefully we'll continue the call to action to reimagine the various approaches to wellness and mental health among healthcare professionals. 
we have Dr. Rebecca Smith-Coggins, who is a professor of emergency medicine at Stanford University and actively involved in graduate medical education. She is heavily involved in medical advising and has been in research on physicians' fatigue and sleep deprivation and impact on work performance. She's also studying the impact of the ER work schedule on clinical performance, mood, and sleep among attending physicians. She must have been successful on this domain as her son followed her footsteps in emergency medicine and currently a resident in EMED at UCLA. Now we have Dr. Bart Taylor, is a professor emeritus of psychiatry and behavioral science at Stanford University. He is a research professor and director of the Center for Mental Health at Palo Alto University. He was the adult psychiatry program director at Stanford Department of Psychiatry for almost two decades. Wow. Most recently, he has been developing and evaluating digital mental health, also known as telepsychiatry which could be applicable in the general population. Dr. Mira Zain is a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at Stanford University. Early in her career, she worked on improving healthcare access for vulnerable population, which led her to a master's degree in public health at Johns Hopkins and an MD at McGill in Montreal. She has been a global health advocate and continues that work at Stanford, being heavily involved in developing integrated behavioral health and digital health, as well as e-consult to expedite the process of access to mental health providers. Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast, and thank you for participating today. Thank you. This is a real heavy topic, so it's so important we could actually have an ongoing podcast on this forever. Where shall we start? I suppose we could start at why medical students or doctors are at increased rate for mental unwellness. Anyone would like to start the ball rolling on mental health in this population? Well, I think one of the things that's important to remember is just the pressures, as you have pointed out, the pressures that people are under and the pressure to study, to always be at your best, make the right decisions. I think a lot of times our sleep suffers as a result of it. And when we don't sleep enough, our cognitive performance is worse you know, we have much more labile emotions. We're not our steady selves. We have a decreased ability to process. Our speed is slower. Just many, many things can really be affected. And I think that that can also get us down. There are numerous conflicts throughout our days, struggling with our electronic medical records, et cetera, that really, I think, also add to the difficulties that a lot of physicians and medical students face. Yeah, beyond our clinical responsibilities, the operational inconsistencies, not in alignment with what we expect to do ourselves, but we have to face on a day-to-day basis, the schedule, even our family lives, right? So tell us more about sleep. I mean, coming from a background of sleep deprivation for most of us, going through med school, preparing for medical school even, because we only have 24 hours to fit in all this stuff that we have to do. So sleep gets sacrificed. How do you then counter that culture that we develop among our healthcare practitioners? Well, it's really hard because I think 
there's a mentality that people get that they really don't need that much sleep, even though all of our studies show that. And, you know, they just run out of time. And that's the one thing that they can sacrifice. Our society has placed a lot of emphasis on exercise and nutrition and other aspects of well-being. But I think that sleep has gotten short changed in many ways. And among healthcare providers, it's definitely true. I would totally agree with that. And thank you, Rebecca, for pointing out in lots of the work you do, the importance of sleep. Physicians are, are trained to feel a little bit invulnerable, and sleep is seen as a usable commodity, like you don't really need it. And if you have little too much to do in too little time, what you lose is first your sleep. And, and of course, it becomes a vicious cycle because one becomes less efficient and also that it contributes to burnout. I think if just in the context of this podcast, people said, really, I need to look at my sleep realistically and honestly. The good news is there are often some really simple things people can do for sleep. It begins by committing yourself to sleep. Now, part of it, it means you have to commit yourself to being less than perfect, meaning you can't stay awake for 24 hours. So that kind of vulnerability doesn't usually fit that well with the physician mentality. But here at the VA, they have developed something called Insomnia Coach, which is free. You can get it from the VA and you can download it. It provides a really wonderful overview of very proven techniques that anybody can adopt. First, though, it's like, I've got a problem with sleep. I need to take it seriously. Second, once you move to that point, then it becomes possible to find a resource. But some of the work that's been done by Mickey Trockel and others, I, I think you work with Rebecca, have, have put together sleep programs that are based essentially on insomnia coach and they work great. Yeah, I mean, even in treatment of depression and anxiety and any mental health disorder, sleep is uh, critical in terms of control of that, right? You know, it's the first thing that we usually ask, are you sleeping okay? So... Um, There's actually a new study that came out looking at the link to sleep and increased rates of depression. And so it becomes super important that people get consistent sleep. And I think people don't realize the link as much between how stress will then cause sleep dysregulation, which will then lead to more stress. And as far as that, it becomes this vicious cycle. So making that conscious choice to say there's always going to be more work, there's always going to be more notes being able to step away from the computer and give yourself sufficient time and using things like the insomnia coach and creating those good habits around sleep is really important. Yeah. So just making really a commitment to this, which is so against the grain of our training, right? We tend to sacrifice everything like, you know, 10 more notes to do. And then at two o'clock in the morning, you're still doing your notes. So your brain cannot slow down right away, right? So I think making that commitment is crucial and being aware that you're actually sleep deprived. So let's talk about sleep deprivation causing burnout. What is actual burnout? Why is the medical profession so high in terms of burnout compared to other career out there? Yeah, well, burnout technically is just so we define it is a triad of symptoms. It's emotional exhaustion. It's depersonalization, kind of distancing yourselves from things. And then it's a sense of low personal accomplishment, like even if you have just gotten an award and things like that, you end up 
belittling it, not allowing yourself to acknowledge your accomplishments. So that's the actual syndrome itself. Right, right. Could we give example of depersonalization? Well, depersonalization would be like, say, in emergency medicine, instead of walking into a room and really empathizing with why the person is there and, you know, just the turmoil that their day has been in when the pain they're in, et cetera, is to just, you know, it's, oh, it's that sprained ankle in seven. It's kind of deeper. You're not really present with your patients as much is one example. So it's really like the replacement of empathy with cynicism, emotional numbness. You get numb to what the patient is experiencing. One thing about burnout, it tends to feed itself. Since physicians by nature tend to really care about the people they're dealing with, I've seen this a lot with residents who are working very hard and they begin to feel a little bit removed or isolated from the patient. You know, it's like they're in the middle of dealing with COVID. I've heard this where just another person comes through the door and by the nature of being a physician, you think you have to really care about everybody and you have that thought, oh no, here's another person I need to take care of. I haven't gotten enough sleep. I'm really tired. And physicians also will tend to look after themselves last and their family members. So that is sort of a disconnect between the values and the work pressure also accentuates the burnout where people start then to have bad thoughts about themselves, like I'm a bad person because I'm having these kinds of thoughts rather than I need to really look at what's happening in the context of a huge workload, often inadequate resources, pressure, and really significant outcomes. I don't know if any of you looked at what's happened with burnout during COVID, but I suspect it's gotten a lot worse, particularly for people who are on the front line. Yeah, there's been studies that have come out looking at exposed residents versus non-exposed who've been working and there's higher rates of burnout for them. There's higher rates of burnout for nurses compared to other healthcare workers in particular because they're oftentimes that first line on COVID wards. And just in general, a lot of studies looking at higher rates of burnout even than prior to COVID. And I think what you were mentioning, right, there's this disconnect. They've used the term moral injury, what physicians are doing and what they want to do and aspire to help with their patients versus what the structure of the system is really imposing with notes and with all of the different loops and things that people have to jump through. And then you superimpose COVID on top of that and the sheer number of hours and resources, so many people that are so sick and worrying about your own family that it makes that even worse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So n- knowing all of that now, like in terms of all the pressures that we are faced with, long hours, operational inefficiencies, you know, the goal of management in terms of economic returns for the organization, which is not in alignment with what we believe in, lack of control and autonomy and all that stuff contributing to this burnout. What can we do as leaders or institutions or organizations to make this a support front project to address it? Well, one thing I think would be beneficial is more of a campaign for self-compassion. I do think that there's a lot of benefit to physicians just being kinder to ourselves. You know, as a population, we tend to have very high self-deprecation numbers and just being able to be a little gentler, recognize that if we have had even a minor setback, whether it's production numbers 
numbers are not as high, et cetera, or a patient doesn't do so well. The failure is really a shared human experience. It's not something that we necessarily have to dump on ourselves quite so much. And related to that, I think that destigmatizing, help seeking, and mental illness would make a huge difference. As you mentioned, Julia, in the very beginning, there's a lot of stigma in the medical profession about mental health problems. And obviously, it's not really appropriate given the fact that we're human beings and we have all the kinds of problems that other people do. But it's a challenge to find services. And I just want to say that there are wonderful treatments for all of the things that we've talked about today. But it takes a certain personal dedication to find them. And it's a little bit harder for healthcare people because they may be reluctant to ask their friends and others for support or advice or ideas about where to go. And it all comes down to the stigma. So from an institutional level where we make it very clear that attendings and institutions and all of the other myriad people involved in healthcare delivery see that a person looking after themselves is a sign of health, not stigma. And being able to see that you have a problem is a sign of health, not unhealth. And doing so really allows you to have a much more meaningful and satisfactory life, but also to be a much better physician. So I would really put the focus on destigmatizing and creating a supportive environment where people are very comfortable about asking for help, looking for help, and given encouragement to go through that journey to find what they need to deal with sleep problems or burnout problems or depression. I think going back, even like, for example, in medical school, I could remember during our time when I was doing residency at Stanford in the 80s, so that's dating back, we were actually forced to go to a counselor, whether you have problems or not. It was actually integrated in our schedule. But is that still occurring? Because I thought that's normalizing, you know, like you don't have to seek for help only when you're having trouble right? You see constant coaching. And I think mental health coaching is critical to normalizing it, demystifying it, and destigmatizing mental health. I know that when, when medical students at Stanford rotate on their psychiatry rotations, and this is true across the board for psychiatry rotations, they end up being part of a process group. And for a lot of them, it's this very strange experience where they're just like, I'm talking about my feelings. This is very weird. I don't do this on any other rotation. And I think that it's a really good experience, but a lot of times that doesn't then happen across the board in other places. And you know, I think that there is that difficulty and that feeling of, I have to be impervious and vulnerable if I'm going to get the residency I want and get into the programs I want. And, you know, I think that's definitely accelerated over time. I think that fear contributes to the stigma, right, in seeking help. The fear that your status will change or that your professional standing will be different because now all of a sudden your mental health problem becomes a part of your core, your character, your personality, as opposed to if I had hypertension and diabetes, can or God forbids, you go to a doctor and there's no problem with it. But when you talk about like, I'm feeling depressed and I'm ready to kill myself, it is so difficult to open up that channel of communication. Yeah, it's definitely a double standard. It's like nobody brings you a casserole when you have any kind of mental health issue, like if you had cancer. And the other 
big barrier that we haven't talked about among healthcare providers that I see frequently in medical students is this fear of credentialing and the questions that are asked by 50% of our state medical boards still ask the question, have you ever received any kind of mental health treatment? And that is just not an appropriate question. And people don't want to lie on their state questionnaire. So that's a big barrier. What would be a much healthier question is what the other half of the state licensing boards ask. And it is, are you now experiencing any mental or physical issue that would prevent you from taking care of patients? I mean, that's a relevant question. And so I think one thing we can do is advocate for states asking an appropriate question and not inappropriate questions. I'm glad that you brought it up, Rebecca, because this is in our own evaluation system of our peers. Like, I have seen that. Like, have you experienced Dr. So-and-so have mental health issues or drug problems? How would I know? They haven't talked to me. You know, so those real questions should be deleted from that because that is not for us to evaluate our colleagues in that regard. And it's a huge barrier. It is a huge barrier. I'm not wild about either of those questions, but I'd certainly go with the latter one than the first one. You know, have you ever received treatment for mental health should be, you should get a raise if that's the case. But a wonderful example of how as a practice, we institutionalize stigmatizing comments that then have repercussions all the way down the line. And I do think the faculty also has to be very mindful and set examples of both looking after themselves and really supporting people's journey in ways to deal with these kind of problems we're talking about. It would make a big difference. I don't think we're going to be talking much about medication, but more controversial in some ways, but physicians are also reluctant to use medication for treating anxiety and depression. I think that itself is a bit of a problem. Yeah, and I think most of us suffer in isolation and tend to self-medicate and get into substance abuse or misuse because of that inappropriate channeling of our issues. So I think we probably have to develop programs and better strategies to deal with this, right? I mean, in terms of being advocate for what truly matters in terms of programs that would improve seeking help without being stigmatized. Absolutely. So we know that burnout contributes to increasing depression, substance abuse, PTSD, anxiety, and more notable, suicide. And we talked about 300 to 400 physicians killed themselves each year. So let's talk about this sinister topic on suicide. Why do we think people carry through suicide? That is that is a loaded question. There's, I think there's a lot of different reasons. I think for some people, they get to a point of hopelessness and they don't see any other way out. Oftentimes, a suicide can be very impulsive. It can be done with substance use. It can be done in the context of an acute stressor that happens and someone doesn't have the coping skills to deal with it. But people also can have chronic significant suicidality and, you know, have struggled and gone and repeatedly been through treatment. And so there's a spectrum of why suicide can tend to happen. I think with physicians, that's also the case, that they have that same spectrum that they will carry 
And then you have that added pressure of burnout. Having a colleague that did die by suicide in December, because I think he just felt so overwhelmed by everything, but he had already had existing things that he was struggling with versus a patient that I had had who had an attempt in the moment because she had had a fight with her boyfriend and was drinking and was very impulsive. So I think you can see such a range of people, but it is something that's more prevalent. The SAMHSA actually had a study with the Census Bureau looking at rates of suicide, and it showed that 11% of participants who responded had seriously considered suicide in the last 30 days. And this was done back in July of 2020 due to COVID. So that's much higher than rates in previous census population surveys. So, From month to month, the trajectory is even increasing, and not just among physicians, but I think our vulnerable population, the Gen Z population, are so vulnerable to this. So the question is, like, You know, people already have probably underlying issues and then the stress of what's expected of us in medicine, the lack of support, and then the declining loss of control and autonomy (laughs) that we face day to day. What do you think we should do as a, a group of educators, leaders, organization to try to help mitigate and deal with the very risk factors to suicide and to intervene early? What would that program look like? I think destigmatization is a huge part of it. And I think so that would be a huge focus is to really destigmatize. And I think the VA actually does a fascinating job where I don't know if you've seen the wristbands where they have the VA health line, but like just kind of ubiquitously giving that to vets that come in and really kind of hammering home that this is a place that is safe for you. You can come in if you're having crisis, but creating a safe space and really letting people know that they can use national crisis hotlines, that there are resources available for them and really destigmatizing that idea, but also also making it aware that suicide is a very real issue that people can experience. For example, in our program, could we integrate a program that interns and residents and med students go to this venue, whether you have problems or not, you just have to go to this or seek guidance like in psychiatry bar, correct me. Do you guys have your psychiatry residents go through a counseling coach? Uh, We strongly encourage it, but it's hard to mandate things in the institution. What you were saying strikes me as a really great idea, Julia, which is to have people go to like, just call them sensitivity groups or discussion groups or other kinds of support groups where people are encouraged to talk about issues. I think that would be a good thing. We always felt that the residents should do that. And I think the residents, many of whom had gone through therapy for various reasons, found it always incredibly beneficial. And the effect is partly reduces stigma. It makes it normal for people to seek help. Plus, if you're a psychiatrist, it's good to be on the other side of the couch, as we say, to see what that experience is like. When I was resident training at Stanford a long time ago, you could actually have free psychoanalysis. Those days are long since gone. I think we also have to pay attention to the fundamentals. So it shouldn't only be the stigma. It's looking after sleep. It's dealing with burnout. It's communicating with people. 
How about loneliness? You know, I don't think people realize that physicians can be really lonely. And I think in this age with COVID, it's gotten a little bit worse. So a, a systematic approach to looking at how physicians and trainees are looking after themselves is actually what I would really favor. We have done this, as you know, in residency training. There are a number of rules that have been instituted in which uh, residents are required to have X amount of sleep and so forth. But we have to consider that there are a lot of other people in the whole medical system who also would benefit by more sleep and by having a way to deal with the burnout. There's a feeling that, well, once you're past a resident, then you're up for grabs. You know, you just work until you drop. So fundamentally, making it very clear that this kind of a discussion is valued and important by everybody and that at all times and all places, we're sort of looking to see what we can do to help people, physicians, feel better about themselves and seek treatment as necessary would be really great. There have been programs that have daily stress monitoring with residents in which the residents are asked, how are you doing? And it's something that is very hard for residents to admit that I'm so stressed I can't do anything. It's another one of those stigma issues. You don't want to admit that you're stressed or not perfect. And there's the assumption that if you do, people will think lesser of you. So a culture in which people can realize that they are supported and appreciated for really looking after themselves and dealing effectively with the issue would make a huge amount of difference. And I just want to say something I believe in really strongly. We have really good approaches and therapies for all of these problems. I do think there's a great problem of access right now. So if I were to do anything, I would increase access both in terms of ease and cost so that any physician at any point, if they needed to see someone, would have them. That is not the case right now. And that's what I would really fix. So going to that topic, I'm sorry, but going away from the couch model to now the telepsychiatry, that will really improve so much of the access and people who would like to go to a mental health provider would not be stigmatized. They don't have to see you go to someone's clinic, right? I mean, even in medical school, I remember that one point few years ago, they were talking about putting mental health providers office outside campus so they don't get seen. Right. So now we tell a psychiatry that will be so ideal. Yeah, Willis is kind of what I do. And Rebecca was going to have something to say. I'll just be very brief about this. I do think that it is one solution and it does have particular appeal, realizing the paradox that physicians are going to feel more comfortable because of convenience and lack of stigma. And that's just the reality that makes it easier. And the studies show that teletherapy works as well as face-to-face therapy in most situations. And we're in the middle of a revolution. There are lots of varieties and we could spend a whole hour kind of of talking about some of the considerations, but overnight, psychiatry has moved from in-person on the couch to teletherapy. The therapists that I talk to and assess what their experience is, and also the patients that I see, often is a win-win. So it increases access, but also is important that one thinks about, well, then how does a practitioner find a teletherapy service that is conducted by a competent person that the institution feels comfortable about? I, I would love medical schools and other places to really support teletherapy with therapists who would be willing to provide it. And the variations of talk therapy by texting and so forth, we don't really need to go into, but I do think they're definitely an option for a lot of people. So from the standpoint of access and affordability, we've really created that. It's just happened. So that's the good news in many ways. 
Rebecca, I interrupted you. I apologize. So you had something to say about this. No, I was just going to say that what we did with our first-year medical students in the fall, they arrived, they were all mostly kept in their rooms because of COVID. We had a hybrid model, so they did get to come to class twice a week, but it was very isolating. And so we had our wellness office offer wellness checks by Zoom, and it was opt out for our students. And I was just shocked. So many people, the vast majority, were perfectly happy to have us Zoom with them and really welcomed it. So I think it created a norm that this is what was going to happen. And you were the exception if you opted out and said, no, I don't want it. So we also were willing to do it after hours, which I think is another big thing for medical students and residents attendings is offering appointments after hours when they don't have to impact day and detract from the patient care is another big part of it. One thing we did at Stanford is develop a mental health team specifically for the School of Medicine with a psychiatrist and two therapists right in the School of Medicine. So this was before COVID and we hadn't really jumped in with both feet to the telehealth side of things. But now I'm wondering, maybe we should put a little bit more emphasis on telehealth and telemedicine. There you go, Bar. Yep. Jump in right on that opportunity. Fabulous idea. So there's a, a question. Believe it or not, we're already past the 30 minutes mark. But I would like to uh, ask some of the questions that my students had asked me from previous podcasts. So one of them we already addressed a little bit on telepsychiatry, right? How about self-care and self-compassion? How do we actually propose a program <laughs> to do that? You mentioned about that is severely lacking among physicians, Rebecca, how would that look like in terms of promoting self-care for us physicians? Well, there are a number of ways to do that. One thing that we have worked on is uh, reflection groups for students, and that occurs on four of our required courses where they meet in groups and self-reflect. And I'm always amazed at how the students will help each other in those sessions because you bring to the session, if you want, it's not forced. I mean, everybody has to go to it, but they don't necessarily have to talk. You bring something that you're having trouble letting go of. And in telling these scenarios, the students are so good to each other and supportive. And I think it helps model what we can do for ourselves. I also think helping people with curriculum during med school on like the importance of a growth mindset, that it's not helpful for us to feel like there's only one way, the perfect way to do everything. It's much better to help students realize that their careers are trajectories with various different choices along the way. And if they aren't where they want to be, it's important to remember the word yet. They can get there. They just have to put some you know, energy and allow themselves some space to do that. So other things with mindfulness is huge. That's a huge one that can help people free themselves from any kind of destructive thoughts. You know, loving kindness meditation is a wonderfully strong, it's been shown in studies, 
very simple to do. It's easy to teach even people who haven't had much experience with mindfulness meditation. The meditation of loving kindness is one that is very strong for self-compassion. Those are just some thoughts. From the standpoint of our primary care physicians and attendings, additional wellness tidbits, self-care and self-compassion strategies. I think Rebecca touched on so many of them. And I think, you know, one thing that I do is I run a, a wellness group with song for the primary care docs. And those themes have come up and really thinking about gratitude and thinking about this, you know, finding silver linings and the positive things in the day to be grateful for, as well as doing that self-compassion. I find that primary care docs, they had a very, very hard time saying positive things about themselves. So I started out with having them say positive things about each other. And that was a lot easier to do. And so reflecting that to them and then having them practice saying a positive thing about themselves, because I think we're all very good at working hard and really being hard on ourselves. So I think encouraging that practice is actually really important to be able to positively reflect and teaching that there is actually a healthy level of narcissism where you you should be proud of the things that you've accomplished and proud of the places you want to go. And I think the yet that Rebecca was talking about so important because practicing there's a type of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. And part of that is really accepting without judgment where you are at this time, because this is just where you are. It doesn't have to be permanent. And then being able to think about where you want to move forward and take those small steps. And as Bar said earlier, back to the basics of sleep is going to be so important. If we think about Maslow's, just making sure you're having meals, right? That's part of self-compassion is that you're actually taking time to feed yourself appropriately and good nutritional food and taking time to do some sort of physical activity, even if it's just taking a small walk, those really basic things to take care of yourself and really care about yourself. I love that. I echo that. And as you mentioned about being almost close to a little bit more narcissist, I think we have difficulty in doing that as doctors. And talking about self-care, how do we integrate the self-care behavior and merge culture and like support structure for people of color? You know, th that was a question by one of the students, indigenous population, the Navajo tribes, etc. They don't see mental health providers who are like them. It's hard to find a Black therapist and an Indigenous therapist. And how would that look like to actually integrate therapy and wellness for people of color with integrating their cultural beliefs and practices? Well, it's quite a, quite a question, Juliet. I worked on in the India Reservation for a couple of years. I'm pondering that. I don't think there's a simple answer. I, I think we have to recognize it's a problem. In my world, I really think we have to train a lot more diversity in psychologists and the same thing within medicine. You really need folks who are part of the healthcare system have to also find a lot of other people who look like them. It's a great way to create a culture that is going to make it much easier for people to deal with problems. So I think it really fundamentally gets the fact that we're not great at really having a very diverse workforce. Psychology, you say, it's hard to find a black therapist. Absolutely. One advantage of teletherapy is that I think it can also begin to really deal with that issue. So we started to look at how we develop Spanish-speaking therapists. That's another huge problem, you know. Theoretically, can find a diversity in terms of interests and experience and languages and provide them. But 
honestly, we're not there yet. It is the challenge. And I think we have to remain very mindful that every day we have to work on increasing diversity and opportunity for lots of different folks to become part of the healthcare system because we really need that. Yeah, I guess we have to address the pipeline, right? So so we're about at the end, and I'm sorry that I would not be able to ask all the questions that my students had asked, but take on points for our podcast today before we say goodbye to each other. Look after yourself. Take your mood very seriously. If you find yourself struggling and getting depressed, don't do it alone. Find a way to talk to people, find the resources to help you. It really makes a lot of difference. And can I just put a little plug in for Greg Hammer's book? He's at Stanford and he has a book that is actually called Gain Without Pain, the Happiness Handbook for Healthcare Professionals that really is uh, focused on wellness for this population. So that would be something to consider. Headspace is another company that I, I don't recommend it as necessarily being the best, but it's incredibly popular. And a lot of people find it a tremendous tool to help with mindfulness and and meditation and self-care. And be kind to yourself, please. Yeah. And just my point would be, you know, it is normal to have really low points in our lives and not to feel badly about that, to embrace it and put some energy into getting help, reaching out, watching for others around you can also be so helpful, especially in medical school classes or groups of residents is another thing. Keep that avenue of communication open. And I think setting that mentorship and modeling behavior, right? So if you are a physician and you're working with residents and you're working with medical students, being able to model that self-care and be open and talk about these issues allows for the residents and students that you work with to also feel more comfortable and think about their self-care. So I really encourage people to be open and have that conversation, especially with your trainees. Yeah, thank you so much. And from me, I guess, expression of gratitude each day and reflecting of three gratitudes every day and a service to others, actually. Being of service to others give us a lot more in return. So thank you so much for joining me on this podcast and really a wonderful time. And I hope we could follow it up with another podcast because this is really a topic that's so close to my heart in terms of being able to take care of ourselves. Thank you so much. Rebecca, Barr, and Mira, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, ACAS, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.